Hi, and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be talking to the team behind the Historical Games Network, a new blog dedicated to exploring the relationship between history and games. This new network promises to bring together academics, game makers, and other cultural workers to broaden perspectives on history games for both a professional and public audience. This new network will be of interest to fans of History Respawn, not only because of its focus, but also because of the people involved. My guests on today's episode are not only part of the team behind the Historical Games Network, but are also former guests on episodes of History Respawn. First, we have Adam Chapman, who is a former senior lecturer at the University of Gothenburg. Fans of History Respawn will remember Adam from the podcast episode on his book entitled Digital Games as History, published by Rutledge in 2016. Adam, welcome back to HR. Hi, thank you. Uh, thank you for having us. That's really great, great to talk to you again. Awesome. And we're also joined by Esther Wright, who is lecturer in digital history at Cardiff University. HR fans will know Esther from her analysis of history in Rockstar Games, particularly L.A. Noir and Red Dead Redemption. Esther, welcome back to History Respond. Hi, it's great to be back. Good to have you. All right, so Adam, Esther, tell me a bit about how the Historical Games Network got started. Yeah, um, so I think the story for me at least starts um, sort of 2014, 2015. Um, a course I ran um, at Gothenburg uh, that had a fantastic initiative to invite PhD students from all over the world uh, to join for um, short courses, accredited short courses on different topics. And I ran one on historical games. Um, at the time, it was quite unusual to meet other scholars that uh, sort of focused on historical games. They were sort of scattered around around the world. But um, we got a great response to the course uh, and ran it. And that sort of gave us a small community of, of students that um, and scholars that were interested in historical games. And we started talking more regularly online. Um, and that led us uh, the next year in 2015 uh, to put on a historical games track uh, at a conference, Challenge the Past, Diversify the Future, um, that uh, Anna Foker and uh, Jonathan Vestine ran uh, in Gothenburg. And again, we were hugely surprised by the response. Um, we ended up, I think, with about 40 papers on historical games, uh, which ended up being sort of half the conference. Um, so it went from being a track to sort of this amazing mix of people from digital humanities and historical game studies and historians and archaeologists and all sorts. And uh, it created a really good discussion. Uh, but the thing that kept coming up was we needed somewhere where everyone could talk kind of these issues through um, in a more sort of organic and, and sort of on a daily basis. Um, so I started a Facebook group called the Historical Game Studies Network Group, um, which started quite small, um, maybe 60 people. And now six years later is about 700, I think, people now. Um, and we've got, you know, all, all sorts of people from all different kinds of stakeholders, um, heritage um, workers, uh, people from games development, um, lots of scholars, uh, obviously. Um, so we had a sort of critical mass of people there. Um, and we'd been talking for a long time about what the next step was. Um, and that's kind of where Esther and Ian and, and Nick sort of uh, took up the baton, so to, to speak. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess fast forward then to sort of February 2020, um, which seems like a different world ago now, really. But 
um, I ran a conference and kind of planned and, and ran a conference at um, the University of Warwick um, because as part of my postdoc there at the Institute of Advanced Study, I had a bit of funding essentially to, to run a kind of any sort of event that I wanted. So I wanted to kind of do um, a one day thing on sort of history and games. And um, yeah, kind of pitched this one day conference, the, the present and future of history and games, and in a, in a kind of similar way, had way more sort of applications for different um, pitches, presentations, and from all different kinds of people from sort of the UK and Europe and the US for the most part, um, that, you know, I kind of knew that I was doing the right thing. So after that, um, Nick uh, Weber, from Birmingham City University and Ian Donald um, from Abate and I kind of got talking um, about the fact that you know it was a you know really kind of lively event that there was so much good discussion and that we seem to be having all these kind of events um, that you know there was such great discussion they were all kind of building on things but we had this kind of momentum that perhaps wasn't necessarily being kind of built on in a way that was making something cohesive and self-sustaining. Um, we knew that there were loads of different people working on different aspects of not only kind of historical games, but history and games and histories of games. Um, and that, you know, from all different kinds of stakeholders, like Adam said, from the industry um, or people who had worked in industry or from academia and from kind of the cultural and heritage and kind of medium industries as well. So, I had also just sort of found out at that time that I got had this job at Cardiff um, and the three of us kind of together were like, well, OK, you know, the three of us have sort of jobs. We have reasonably kind of stable employment in academia um, and there are so many people who are doing kind of such excellent work who might not be in the position really um, might be kind of precariously employed in academia or in other industries or having to consider leaving academia despite the fact that they're sort of really kind of the the current and next generation of people doing work on historical games so the three of us we're kind of in theory paid to do this it's part of our job we have a little bit more kind of time and headspace and perhaps institutional resources to kind of get something um, done to kind of coordinate and to kind of help manage um, a space or take on the responsibility for um, something in the kind of short to midterm. Um, so yeah, this was kind of what we came up with really sort of a, a series of semi-regular events, um, a kind of online space that could give a certain kind of platform um, to people who were sort of new to the field or um, yeah, had, had something to say from all different perspectives. Um, and then we were kind of fortunate that through Ian and through Abate we were able to get some funding from the in-game project based in around sort of Dundee with um, universities in the creative sector so that was kind of where we started um, over a year ago now and between kind of pandemic and everything else and just kind of having regular conversations between ourselves and trying to work out what it was we wanted to build and what it was that we wanted to do um, this is kind of where we've ended up I guess. Awesome yeah um, so I mean, Adam, you had talked uh, briefly there about kind of next steps. And I'm wondering, you know, in creating this network and kind of building off of the uh, Facebook group, which, as you said, is really lively. I'm wondering, you know, what are kind of the immediate short term goals for the network? Um, you know, Esther touched on briefly these events, but I'm wondering, you know, is there uh, something beyond the events that you're looking forward to to trying to get out uh, in kind of the next couple of years? Yeah, um, I mean, as Esther uh, mentioned, sort of one of the main aims here was to find a way to sort of coalesce the 
historical game studies field, you know, because it's very disparate and we we don't have sort of annual events that, uh, you know, the whole field sort of aims for, um, you know, the, the kind of things you really need to solidify a sort of area of study. Um, so I think the the aim of it really is to try and bring a focal point for that, uh, uh, just some regard, um, provide a focus point for discussion, uh, obviously more agile discussion um, than you can do through journals. Um, but we also hope that eventually it will provide a way to find uh, more uh, research more easily. Because uh, we see, for example, uh, there's a lot of interest in historical games now. Um, we see a lot of sort of senior academics um, sort of becoming interested uh, as they become a kind of hot topic. But we notice that often people are, are missing the existing discourse um, that's out there uh, and, and the kind of literature that's out there. Um, so we hope to sort of provide uh, a sort of a public face, if you like, for the field uh, of work that, as it exists now and hopefully eventually will make it easier for people to find stuff uh, and hopefully eventually produce some kind of more formal avenues, uh, journals and, and conference events and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think um, to sort of touch on what Adam said a little bit more, like just to facilitate this space for a bit more reflection on where we've been and where we want to go um, is was a kind of key consideration for, for us, for all of us to build on what's already been done and you know as you say Adam to, to kind of build up some kind of institutional memory or not even institutional memory sort of disciplinary memory or a kind of usable disciplinary memory um, around the the kind of the great and sort of the really diverse stuff that's been happening in academia but also happening within kind of people who are more focused on game making and the industrial kind of um, aspects of things as well as kind of the more cultural heritage um, side of things to not only be able to have a space where we can refer new people to the field, new people who are interested in making games about history or to thinking about what the role of museums or kind of you know cultural heritage might be. But also I think and something that's become more of a um, more of an immediate consideration for me in terms of you know my job is somewhere what we could perhaps um, refer sort of students to as well and people who are looking kind of more longer term in terms of their interest in studying history and games um, as having kind of like a, a first resource base and obviously not to kind of discount or to overlook the the kind of really interesting websites and resources and, and podcasts and all the things that already exist but actually something of a bit more usable um space like as adam said something more than just like a journal where you can have more kind of active discussion and we can move things forward a little bit more um because we do have this space and time to just get people together and see where these interests and overlaps are mm -hmm. yeah i think it's a really great idea and i think you know from uh, an academia standpoint it's very attractive because I think when you talk about disciplines and fields, there's an expectation that it comes along with journals and regular events. And I mean, I've got a lot of experience, rather unfortunate experience with working with academic journals. And I am not particularly interested in that traditional model, but I am interested in these kind of online networks, um, you know, bringing people together and having them, you know, provide, uh, provide them with, you know, like you said, some kind of um, base level of knowledge and place for uh, engaging in this discourse and even something as simple as, uh, as I think you were both were mentioning kind of having a bibliography, uh, for work that's already been done, because I can say as somebody who works, um, you know, on history respond and, you know, kind of thinking about episodes and themes and topics to deal with, I kind of have to keep my own running list of previous works that's been written. And yet I miss out on all sorts of stuff, 
uh, particularly coming from Europe that I'm just not aware of. And then it will be, it'll come up uh, in, uh, you know, one of Facebook posts, but then it's like, well, Facebook's not really a great way to go and search back for older posts of like, oh, didn't somebody mention this game? Didn't they mention they were writing something else? I, I can't find it. So I think even in that just kind of very limited sense, it, it would be extremely useful. And so I'm really excited about this venture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, I think we all have those individual lists, don't we, of, uh, you know, the stuff that's been done. And, and I think it's becoming more, it's more difficult now as well, because I mean, the rate that the field has expanded in the past three years even is, is crazy. You know, like I, I used to be able to keep up with everything that was written about history and games. And now, you know, I, I can't nearly keep up with it. Uh, you know, my reading pile is far exceeded something I'll actually be able to get through, um, which is great. You know, it's awesome to see an explosion of interest in the topic, you know, for, uh, for all of us that have been saying for years, you know, this is something worthy of study. But at the same time, now it's like, okay, we've learned to, you know, document our thoughts. Now we need to index them as well, you know, <laughs> as every great civilization must. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this just real briefly. I mean, I feel you'd mentioned the past few years, it seems like there's been a groundswell of support for this kind of study. Do you feel that you're getting a kind of reception from institutions as well? Because I know, you know, from the work from the Facebook group, you know, there's obviously more people joining up. Uh, there's been a, a rise in interest, uh, you know, in podcasts related to this and, you know, other websites. But I'm just wondering, you know, from the institutional level, from academia itself, kind of traditional institutions, do you feel like in Europe, where you are in the UK, do you feel like it is kind of reaching a tipping point where it's kind of pushing on open doors rather than what it's been like, I'd say, in the past decade, where it's kind of like we're a few people just kind of crying in the wilderness? <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. I think there's still a way to go. I think it it's still quite difficult to get funding to do uh, research on historical games in my experience. Um, I think, I think probably it's something that extends to um, sort of funding for games research anyway, is that unless it's explicitly sort of gamification, education, uh, you know, something like that, it's, uh, it's quite difficult to get funding a lot of the time. Um, and I also, I don't know if there ever will be that, institutional support because of the way universities are going now with the sort of new business management kind of models um, where they're very sort of targeted to particular industries and you know sort of critical uh, kinds of uh, fields uh, and critical sort of theory is not particularly you know useful in those kind of models sadly um, so I don't know you know I, I, I hope so I hope that as you know academics move up through the Sort of ranks that you will see more and more institutional support for that but um i haven't seen it yet but then at the same time we've got this funding to do the website so obviously there is you know there is some interest there i think it's interesting kind of from my perspective which is you know i think slightly different that there's there's more interest or maybe not maybe interest is the wrong word but i can't quite think of the right one there's more sort of awareness that the digital, like this quote unquote, the digital is an area where, um, especially within kind of history and more sort of humanities disciplines, there's this kind of broad awareness of like, that's where we need to be going. But people don't necessarily kind of understand um, what directions or what aspects of that um, are, are where we need to be going. So 
I think that's where I've perhaps been quite lucky in getting, the, you know, getting getting my job, um, which is very broadly kind of digital history. Being somebody who, um, in terms of how I define myself as a digital historian and what I do for digital history, um, be, because of the nature of the work that I do anyway, and not just looking at games, but also looking at kind of digital promotion materials and stuff. I do feel sometimes, um, maybe I'm just being ungenerous to myself, that I've kind of slipped in under the radar as someone doing doing kind of historical, digital historical games and teaching and things like that. But like I said, I think there's there's definitely more sort of broad interest of, oh, we could be doing some really interesting things. Um, as Adam said, there's, there's definitely not the kind of money necessarily behind it um, within or within institutions or within kind of broader sort of um, funding networks. But I think there's enough kind of general interest and awareness of, yeah, this is where we need to be going that I'm hoping, um, kind of certainly optimistic for a little bit of an explosion of more kind of jobs and more resources and more um, ways of actually supporting and sustaining what we're doing rather than just people kind of having to do things off their own backs, if that makes sense um, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I also think at a kind of uh, individual level, um, sort of between scholars, then, I mean, it's a completely different landscape now. You know, when I first started sort of going to conferences and talking about historical games, um, there was often sort of looks of confusion or outright sort of like rejection of the very notion that there could be anything worth looking at. Whereas now I much more rarely see that kind of reaction. I think history as a discipline is... uh, uh, much more open to the notion um, I think because partially because a lot of those scholars now now grew up playing games or their kids play those games and they see you know how important they are to how they think about the past or the things they get interested in or whatever so I think it's a sort of organic thing I don't you know it's I'm, I'm not crediting the field with it necessarily but just the sort of the rise of consciousness about video games as a valid sort of art form has opened uh, certainly intellectual doors, if not necessarily funding and, and institutional doors. Yeah, absolutely. And I can add, you know, just anecdotally with regards to history respond, it's been much more, I'd say easier to get uh, scholarly guests for the show. Whereas in years past, when I first started in the mid 2010s, um, you know, it would be the case that I would approach five or six uh, historians or other scholars and they would be like, this is nonsense. Why would I do this? You know, and now it's (laughs) usually the first person that I ask I can get to come on the show, which is a, a big, big change. And I think, like you said, it's partly uh, academia realizing that there's something there, but then also I think uh, there's certainly demographics involved with, you know, kind of like you said, Adam, you know, a new generation of scholars coming up having played games and maybe still playing games, probably to the yeah. detriment of their academic careers, but uh, okay, <laughs> we'll see. Um, so Historical Games Network has an event underway this month on historical truth. And I'm wondering, uh, what can you tell our listeners about this event? Um, I guess just to, to begin, I would say that when we were sort of thinking about broad themes for a series of events, um, just to kind of begin things, we were quite deliberate in picking very, very broad themes um, and topics that we knew or we wanted to be quite um, provocative and quite, you know, very much open to 
broad sort of interpretation um, and um, different perspectives and things like that. So starting off with something like historical truth, which I think we decided on, you know, quite quite a long time ago, and I was probably sort of mid-2020, um, has, has been sort of interesting because of, you know, my own interest in, you know, the sort of ideas about things like authenticity in historical games, um, as well as, you know, how differently this idea can be interpreted by people in academia, people in the industry, people in kind of, you know, various different um, perspectives on games. But from my perspective and kind of the, the way that sort of um, certain sort of, you know, current events, politics, things have been going in the last couple of years too, we, we really did sort of pick <laughs> one of those topics that has become more and more applicable as time goes on, um, especially sort of, increasingly I guess in, in the UK context um, where there's been very very public debates around sort of what history is true or not or what history what aspects of history perhaps our kind of national identity and, and national history British history um, is the the correct version or not um, yeah so something that became more and more relevant actually um, in, into this year you know and obviously for, for the last few years um, ideas about truth have been particularly relevant to kind of um us in the west um and our kind of society and politics but yeah so for context they were they were deliberately selected to be kind of as i said provocative and open to interpretation but yeah we thought we'd start with the the easiest question right no it's I've, I've really enjoyed it so far with uh, writing up my first blog post um because you know it, if you talk about truth, you automatically get to talk about postmodernism, which is you know one of my favourite subjects. So it was nice to have a, a bit of a rant there and uh, be able to uh, hopefully, like you say, uh, bring some provocative questions to the fore and sort of try and contextualise those debates that have been going on for sort of forty years now in in as you say the contemporary sort of mind where we, on the one hand, postmodernism is needed more than ever because the the power relations involved in history are you know, more obvious than ever. And at the same time, it's been appropriated and misused by the sort of alt-right and, you know, in, in terms of fake news, that extreme relativity um, has been sort of, is a perversion basically of postmodernist ideas. And I think we have to admit that. So it's been, that was an interesting thing to sort of think about and talk about. And, and you know, as it relates to games very much because of course those those debates, those culture wars, you know, you know to use the, the, the phrase, um, are going on in video games. You know, you look, you look at games like Kingdom Come Deliverance uh, and the sort of debates that have gone on around that. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the frontline areas, um, sadly, because games culture seems to have quite a strong relation with the alt-right, um, which is depressing, uh, but, you know, sort of inevitable with Gamergate being the sort of the breeding ground for a lot of those ideas. Um, you know, I, I think video games, historical video games particularly, have become a really important sort of battleground um, to try and uh, fight fight back against some of those ideas. So hopefully uh, it's, you know, as you say, a, a very of the moment topic. Yeah. And I think it's it's just, it's really interesting to me and especially in actually now kind of teaching these sorts of things and speaking to students about them in, in a weird sort of way, it's put into context a lot for me, the fact that the kinds of questions that we are asking about games and ideas about history and truth are the kinds of questions that we've, always been asking implicitly or explicitly about history um and about you know what what is the kind of the truth about the past and how, how do we get at it and how do we represent it um so 
you know, as you say, Adam, I think that games are kind of not only a hotbed for all these kinds of really kind of active and, and sometimes, um, you know, intense conversations about ideas of truth and accuracy and authenticity and all these different ways that we can put it. But um, yeah, um, completely lost my train of thought. But you know, I think we, I think between us, we probably covered what we were trying to do. Um, and yeah, and in, and in getting getting together, you know, um, yeah, sort of someone with an academic perspective on these things, somebody with a kind of um, more game development side on these things, and somebody from a kind of museum's perspective on on these, you know, these sort of complicated issues. Um, we we're hoping that it's kind of going to enable us to see um, sort of where the meeting points and where the differences are in a way that might help us to kind of move conversations forward in some ways. Yeah. So lay out those perspectives for me. Um, What is actually going to be published on HGN as part of this event? Uh, We've got a perspective from academics, but then um, people from game development. Uh, what, What is actually all involved with this particular event? Yeah, so uh, as Esther said, the idea is for each event that we try and get someone from each of those kind of three sectors um, to do a kind of uh, guest post, uh, basically. Um, So uh, this time we have um, Javier, uh, who's the developer of uh, Dreams of Darkness, uh, who will be providing our games industry perspective. uh, And that video will be dropping next week, uh, which will be the first sort of post. And then is it Ilva the week after? Yeah, Ilva Grusted, uh, our scholar, who uh, has done some really fascinating work um, looking at sort of grand strategy games and uh, from the developer point of view as well, um, doing sort of research on these kind of counterfactual games, uh, much needed research, you know, stuff that we've been calling for for a long time. Uh, and then we have John Glancy as well, who works at the Imperial War Museums, who will be our, um, our next post after that. Uh, and these will be dropping sort of weekly, um, basically. And again, hopefully we get the similarities between those perspectives and we find a common ground, but also we find, of course, everybody works under different pressures depending on what uh, environment they work in. in. Um, and, you know, even in academia, we have to acknowledge the fact that we work under pressures as well. You know, it's like we, we often talk about history as this pure thing and then popular history is this, you know, dirty marketable thing. And it's like acad- academics have to sell books too. You know, <laughs> we have to we have to appeal to funders and, you know, we're, we're all under different pressures. And I, I hope that we see some of that, you know, the the not just the formal pressures or the different forms that all of the different stakeholders work through, but also the kind of um, sort of economical pressures, the the um, the political pressures, you know, the the daily existence under under I suppose capitalism <laughs> um, for for each of the different stakeholders, and I hope we we sort of draw out some of that as well um, because that's always kind of important to how we represent the past as well. Yeah, and then it kind of um, culminating in our sort of um, live event, our live session, um, sort of at the end of May, really as a chance um, for everyone to kind of get in the virtual room together and to chat these things through and to have it be kind of quite discussion based. Um, and obviously the, the plan for then sort of later themes is that um, there'll be a broader range of contributions um, kind of it'll be much more collaborative in, in that, you know, um, people will pitch to us, hopefully, <laughs> um, to, to write their own kind of contributions, um, as well as kind of contributions from our invited guests, invited guests rather for the, the live session but um, that we're really offering and kind of facilitating and creating a space for people to come together and to talk about these kind of big and complicated topics, really. So we should, we should say we have uh, a 
call for our next theme up on the website now uh, as well for interested listeners that might like to submit some link. Um, uh, the next topic will be ethics. And so you can find our blog post um, by uh, Nick Weber on there uh, explaining the theme. And please do write something and, and send it into us because we, we'd love to hear from you. Great. Awesome. Um, so I guess just to kind of wrap up the talk here about the network, I'm, I'm curious, um, what, what do you see as the kind of the ultimate goal of the network? And in particular, where do you see historical games network going in the next decade or so, you know, obviously, hopefully funding uh, will continue. Um, but, you know, where would you all like to see uh, this kind of work ultimately end up? Go first, Nesta. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no, I think for me something, um, we know that we already have like a, a huge amount of really interested people in these sorts of things, not just academics. Um, and that's just really important for me to stress that this doesn't just become and has never been conceived of something for just academics. This is really for, for everyone. Um, but for it to become something a bit more kind of self-sustaining um, and that we can grow into something that isn't just your kind of standard academic journal, as we were saying earlier, but something that does allow us to kind of keep um, an open dialogue um, through all different kinds of contributions and from all different kinds of people and to develop, as we've been saying, this kind of memory of um, historical games and how it's, these things are relevant to all different people. Um, I mean, you know, some kind of annual conference or meetings, I think maybe defining it as um, conferences can be maybe a bit, you know, sounding like we're leaning towards academia, which I guess, you know, we're all, we're all academics. So, you know, we kind of have to work within our niche, but some sort of annual activities or meetings or events or things that can just bring people together. Um, so yeah, for me, those are the kind of the, the, the main things just to kind of build on what we know we already have and to make sure it kind of can grow organically and provide spaces and opportunities for different people um, to kind of have a voice in this field, essentially. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, like you say, you know, whatever we do going forward, we want it to kind of remain open. So we remain, you know, in touch with, you know, different sectors. Um, but I think personally, I'd like to see, as you say, an annual conference. Uh, but again, they could have, you know, guests from the games industry and stuff as well to, you know, make sure it keeps that um, kind of those avenues of communication open. Uh, but also I'd like to see a journal sort of going forward, maybe at some point. Um, again, it would have to be something more like the Rethinking History Journal, you know, where it's a very open thing. You know, as Alan Munzler once said to me, who's the editor of um, Rethinking History, uh, you know, anything is possible in Rethinking History. You know, there was always room for experimentation and, and open-mindedness there. And, and if we did have a journal, that would be uh, the kind of thing we'd be looking for and something open access, of course. Um, and again, it's not about sort of retreating into the ivory tower so much as those things give you the tools sometimes you need to approach funders. Um, and stuff like that, you know, and, and, you know, the utopian dream for me would be the one day somewhere around, you know, the world, we have a sort of sense of historical game studies. And of course you need uh, all of these kind of steps along the way to start something like that. But it would be great to actually have some kind of institution eventually that focused on, you know, studying historical games. Um, whether that will happen uh, is of course dependent on <laughs> many, many things, but if we're doing sort of blue sky thinking, that would be, that would be a great thing. Um, and hopefully the website, you know, is a way to bring together the kind of community and, and critical mass you need to at least make those things seem like a possibility one day in the future. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I'm always conscious of the way fantastic work has been done on historical film in historiography, you know, people like Robert Rosenstone. Um, but 
still it's not really institutionalized anywhere, even though it's one of the ways that, you know, most people around the world receive most of their history. Uh, so, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic, but emphasis on the cautious. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems very fair. Uh, so where can our listeners go to learn more about this new network? So our website is hopefully relatively simply historicalgames.net. Um, on Twitter, we are at historygamesnet. Um, I think that's correct. Um, and obviously for the, for the uh, OG fans, we're still on Facebook. <laughs> on Adam's Facebook group, the, the Historical Game Studies Network, um, I think is the name of the group. Um, but yeah, if you yeah. That in, you find us on Facebook and we're, there's still uh, the discussions, you know, the day-to-day -day discussions go on there and call for papers, new publications, uh, you know, just general discussions about new games coming out and stuff. So do, do feel free to join us there as well. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I've got one last question. I, I pitched this question to all of my guests who come on the show and uh, that's what have you been playing recently, uh, historical games or otherwise? So we'll go with Adam first. Uh, okay, so uh, historical games-wise, I've been playing a game called Enlisted, which is a sort of World War II uh, first-person shooter. They sort of bill as an MMO, but, I mean, the games industry uses that term very liberally now. Uh, but it's uh, it's a weird game. It's one of these free-to-play games, uh, sort of games-as-a-service model kind of game, this live game that will develop. Uh, and you... It mixes very much RPG mechanics of upgrading individual squads uh, with first-person shooter kind of gameplay. And it's got an enormous amount of granularity in, you know, you can upgrade each individual soldier in the three different squads you're allowed. Uh, really, I'm playing it because I'm kind of interested in what these games-as-a-service games, these kind of live games, these ongoing online games means for history. You know, how what kind of pressure does it put on the representation of history? Uh, so far, I'm seeing very much a sort of fetishization of, of the material culture of world war ii that you see in most world war ii games but it obviously in an rpg game where that's your form of empowerment it becomes hyper fetishized if that's possible uh, so that's a kind of interesting uh, dynamic that i've seen in that um in terms of non-historical games i've been playing cyberpunk uh, 2077 <laughs> like i think a lot you've people. been able to actually play it yeah after 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 about the first two weeks it worked <laughs> you know enough to play um it's buggy it's it's very mechanically superficial uh, it has huge balancing issues. I've basically used the same gun for the entire game, <laughs> which doesn't seem right for an RPG. Uh, but at the same time, it still has that kind of world building and that kind of uh, narrative mission design that CD Projekt Red are known for. So it does have their sort of quality buried in there. So I have actually found it sort of worth pursuing past all of the bugs and the regular crashes. Uh, it even makes the new Xbox crash <laughs> quite regularly. So it's been a challenge, um, not just a, a gameplay challenge, but a real world one as well. But it's 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 good. I've enjoyed it. Good. Well, I mean, you. It sounds like you've got some past experience with CD Projekt Red. What do you think about this approach to RPGs in Cyberpunk as compared to The Witcher, for instance? Yeah, it's interesting. They're they're very they're very different, I suppose. Um, I think The Witcher mechanically was much more interesting. Uh, it's, you know, it really does have some really original stuff going on in there. Uh, and it's kind of the opposite to Cyberpunk in the sense that The Witcher seems like a simple RPG at first. And then you realize, 
all of the granularity in those systems and there's so much to do and it's so exciting and it's it's hard <laughs> you know i struggled for a long time with the witcher when i first started playing it but uh cyberpunk's kind of the opposite on the surface it looks like it's got a lot of systems and actually it's really simplistic uh mechanically uh it's yeah um there's not so much underneath the surface but it's very pretty surface so i've uh, spent kind of quite a lot of time but i mean i i would hope to see, and I think they're working on another Witcher game. Uh, I would hope to see they sort of keep the core of what made the Witcher sort of so unique. Um, and they, like I said, the, the mission design is still really good. There's still some really interesting stuff going on there. Not quite the chaotic, um, the sort of chaotic structure that they're known for in the Witcher, where even when you try and make a good decision, it always turns out bad. And if you try and make a bad decision, then it doesn't always turn out good and <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. I always really enjoyed that about those games. You know, it was, uh, it really said something about the realities of lived experience, you know, where weirdly they always remind me of playing a historical game, The Witcher, mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much about causality, you know, they're about like why things happen and the unpredictability of lived experience and how you can aim for a goal, but you don't end up there. And, you know, that's how human history is absolutely, you know, played out. Um, so despite them being fantasy, I've always thought they had something really interesting to say about history and human affairs. And it doesn't quite have that same thing in cyberpunk. But of course, there's lots of satire of contemporary kind of uh, capitalism and politics and, you know, uh, sort of fear of technology and stuff. So there's still some good stuff going on in there. Good. Yeah, well, hopefully they get a chance to iterate on cyberpunk. We'll see. I don't know with the the current problems with the game. Yeah, it'll make a fantastic sequel. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and that that reminds me, I've been kind of thinking about this a lot with the next generation of hardware that's come out. It feels like a lot of the games that have come out in the past year have had that same kind of syndrome that we had with games in 2007, 2008, where we had the generational turn and we had Assassin's Creed, like the first Assassin's Creed was a mess, uh, you know, both mechanically and narratively. And then it was the sequel that really kind of set in stone and really improved upon uh, really what was a concept in the first game. Uh, And so maybe Cyberpunk's the same way. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like the second game is a sort of 50 pound patch, you know, (laughs) it's a patch for the first game. You just have to buy a new game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Esther, what about you? Well, this sets me up really well, actually, because I've just started playing The Witcher 3 again, (laughs) 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 which I I definitely kind of in some ways um, still think generously of as a historical game, um, even though it is, you know, what, almost 100% fantasy. Um, But as someone who in my kind of um, previous playthroughs has always managed to get the good ending, I do feel like another smugness about that and about the the (laughs) arguments about causality and uh, who I am as a player, I guess. so yeah, that's my kind of game I've just started again um, because I, I don't have the energy to start anything brand new um, after what I've been playing for the last couple of months. So over kind of Christmas and into January and February, I was playing um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, um, which kind of out of um, professional curiosity, but also I spent most of the last summer playing um, Odyssey um, after you know not having played an Assassin's Creed game for, for years. Um, and yeah, I find... I found Valhalla, I I don't know, I'm still really like deeply conflicted about that game. Um, And, you know, I I finished it and I spent probably more hours than I would like to admit on it, actually just doing all of the things. And there were so many things to do, like even above and beyond the usual like Assassin's Creed level of things to do. It was just completely extra. Um, But I, what, 
in comparison to what I felt when I was playing Odyssey, when, when I was playing Odyssey, I felt like I was always aware of the kind of meta-narrative framing of that game. I was always aware that like I was controlling a character playing Cassandra, if you know what I mean. I always knew there was like that Assassin's Creed-ness that was going to be pulled back at some point. And you were going to become like Layla Hassan again and that sort of thing. And I was like, okay, this meshes really well with the Assassin's Creed thing. But with Valhalla, I didn't I didn't feel like that. I I, I don't know what it was that the the points and they weren't that many points actually where you were sort of taken out of the animus and you kind of went back to present day or future day or whatever it is felt like a real wrench actually because I was kind of just enjoying the sort of um the vikingness of it really and there's so many different kind of narrative layers going on with that game between like Asgard and between kind of you know middle-aged England and Norway and you know the bit in America and all that I just I felt like it was the first Assassin's Creed game where I felt like I, I didn't want that Assassin's Creed layer. I kind of just wanted it to be a game about what it was about. And I think so many of the things I feel so conflicted about with that game would because of like the extra Assassin's Creed-y kind of things in it, like the, all the different like mini games and things to search for. I wanted it to push past being an Assassin's Creed game, which is probably too much, too much of an ask because it's an Assassin's Creed game. If any of that makes sense, any sense whatsoever <laughs> i don't know but yeah yeah i'm, I'm about 30 hours into that game and i've got to say i'm deeply conflicted about it because i just felt you know i think on the one hand assassin's creed valhalla is great because you've got all of the individual zones with all of their various things to do and on that kind of point it feels a bit like the witcher 3 in the sense that you know each quest in the witcher 3 felt like a independent book chapter almost where it's like oh i can play this for a couple hours get a satisfying conclusion and then stop and valhalla has that same sort of feel where you go to a new area and you start the quest line and you can you know treat it like a uh an episode in a mini series or uh, you know as a chapter in a very long chapter in a book uh, but at the same time, I felt like the whole of the game, which includes that kind of Assassin Creed-ness that you're talking about, doesn't work as well. And it feels like a, it feels as though the writers of the game, the developers were less interested in that part as well. And so I wonder what that means going forward. Um, Adam, you, you sounded like you wanted to say something too. Yeah, I was just going to say it's always been a, a slightly odd thing, a sort of science fiction framing narrative in the series, um, which, yeah, I've never entirely understood the purpose of unless it's maybe to provide uh, a sort of alibi for um, you can put whatever you want in the game and know it's okay because it's, you know, it's it's science fiction, actually. It's not, it's not a history game. Um, but, yeah, I've not played Valhalla yet, but... Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in the way it seems to lean very heavily on the Vikings TV show and Last Kingdom TV, TV show and stuff like that, where the general obsession with kind of material culture in uh, these kind of games, particularly clothes. Uh, I mean, I'm not a historian of the era, but from what I understand, the Vikings didn't really look like that. They, they you know, they didn't look like bikers. The, what I've started to call Vikings. You get this kind of Vikings <laughs> look everywhere that you see in Vikings and in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And it's like when you see pictures of, uh, you know, what the, you know, reenactors that reenact the, the Vikings, it's like, oh, they look much more sort of like gnomes or something, you know, like these wonderful, colorful outfits and stuff. So I was kind of intrigued by that kind of relationship and, and how they've sort of jumped on something that's obviously got a moment in the popular eye 
um, and it's sort of very much mixed with the kind of imagery um, that they, they have in, in those kind of TV series. Um, but yeah, the, I haven't played it, but it stresses me out just hearing you talk about how much there is to do in it. Like, who are they making these games for? The, the people that want so much content in a world where there's so many games to play now and we're all overloaded with games. Who is it? It's like, yeah. I need a hundred hours from this game well, to get through. It's so <laughs> clearly an influence of The Witcher 3. I mean, I think looking yeah. at that game and then seeing the development of kind of the first in this new trilogy of Assassin's Creed games, Origins, and you see they they turn right yeah. into the RPG mechanics. You get numbers flying off of enemies when you hit them, um, you know, which is just yeah. totally antithetical to what <laughs> Assassin's Creed was before that. And then in addition to those kind of increased RPG mechanics, you've got sprawling narratives that, you know, in the case of Odyssey, went about 70 hours, uh, not including DLC. And then with uh, Valhalla... I haven't finished it. Uh, maybe Esther can uh, tell us more, but it seems like it's even longer than Odyssey, which is just, I mean, I just, I can't, I can't do it. I miss, I miss the days of just like a 16 hour Assassin's Creed game. Like what, what happened? I want my old man Assassin's Creed back. Yeah, absolutely. I miss linear games as well. I was thinking this recently, you know, where it's like, I don't have to wonder where to go. I don't have to investigate everything in this massive world filled with tasks that are just like tasks I do in the real world. You know, I, I like going through the tightly controlled pace story. You know, we used to all think, oh, I can't wait for open world games. It's going to be so much like reality. And now I realize it's too much like reality. And sometimes I just want to go back. I really like The Last of Us 2 for that, actually. That's one of the games I've enjoyed the most recently. And it wasn't fully linear, but it was much more linear than contemporary games tend to be in. I really enjoyed the way they could pace the drama in that then and uh, still allow enough freedom to enjoy a lot of what open world games offer anyway. Yeah, I went actually, weirdly, I went from Valhalla straight into The Last of Us 2 after basically avoiding it um, for, well, you know, since it came out and not really being sure I wanted to play it and then being like, okay, no, I, I want something more kind of confined um, and just... I haven't like read up too much on it. I kind of tried to keep it, you know, I, I knew what was going to happen. Like broadly speaking, I knew what the kind of emotional punch was going to be in terms of the beginning, but getting to, you know, I don't really want to talk spoilers, even though this is a game that's been out for a long time, but getting to like the kind of midway point and having that, that particular thing happen in the game. Um, it, I'm still not sure how I really feel about it, but it actually, the fact that it, it made me kind of, feel something in a way that a lot of games haven't necessarily made me just like feel things really strongly for a long time um and that might be because I, you know I, I really hadn't had the time to kind of invest in, in a lot of games over the last few years despite obviously you know researching and writing games like the, the time <laughs> like other stuff wasn't really there but yeah I, I I kind of appreciated or sort of was like oh, okay fair enough giving giving kudos to the fact that the game made me if nothing else just really angry yeah. <laughs> about halfway through and then for the rest of the remaining part of um, the game um so yeah yeah so I, I agree with you absolutely though like I, I feel the same it's been a long time since a triple a game I would say you know really grabbed me narratively and emotionally and I really found that was the last of us too you know I, I hope that we'll get something similar from the Bioshock series is coming back now, I think, which is one of these game series I always think back to for that emotion. You know, even when they were clumsy or they did things wrong or like kind of insensitively, they said something, you know, rather than just recycling the same, you know, tropes over and over again, they actually tried to say something and say something by using both narrative and mechanics. And I thought The Last of Us 2 really did that well. And I thought it was 
lot of people have objected to the violence of it, but I actually don't think it's about human violence so much as the way video games make us treat um, sort of human violence. I think it's more a comment on games than it is on humanity, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, again, without spoilers, uh, it's a great game. I, I recommend people to play it. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally in agree with you, Adam. I think it's, it is kind of a meta commentary on gaming and you know, I've, I've long thought about, you know, writing kind of a long treatise about the treatment of NPCs by historical games and, you know, thinking in particular, not just of, um, kind of action adventure games, third person action adventure games, but then also obviously, uh, historical simulations and 4X games and how, you know, we just participate in, uh, absolute barbarity <laughs> against yeah, NPCs <laughs> for decades and decades and never really think about it. And, I always find it funny when we talk about violence in games, we don't talk about, in terms of scale, the most violent games, which are these 4X grand strategy games where, you know, if you really sit back and think about it, we are murdering hundreds of thousands of people in like a civilization game or a total war game. Absolutely. And we don't even consider it in the same breath as something like The Last of Us. Yeah, as soon as, as soon as it's like kind of abstracted, then suddenly it's kind of becomes okay. But when you know, even with, with city management, you think <laughs> I'm, I'm probably killing my own citizens by making bad choices here. <laughs> you know, even before I've invaded another empire. But as long as it's only numbers, then I don't have to think about that. It's yeah, fine. yeah, yeah. Uh, banality of evil uh, in digital yeah, form, indeed. I suppose. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Esther, just really quickly, I, I'm really excited to hear that you've been playing The Last of Us Two primarily because I'm interested in this kind of long-term influence of cinema on Naughty Dog's games. And I know that you've kind of thought a lot about that with regards to Rockstar. And I think there's kind of an interesting feedback loop that we're going to get soon because uh, the first Last of Us game is now being adapted into an HBO uh, series uh, here in the States. I think it might involve British producers as well. So I'm just wondering, you know, hearing that news, what are your thoughts about this potential for a game partly inspired by cinema uh, to now being adapted into a television cinema production? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, this, this, this idea of the kind of um, the cinematic game, quote unquote, has just kind of plagued me for the last few years in, you know, in in thinking and, and kind of writing about Rockstar and how that's, less necessarily a quality and can for, for for a lot of games just be more of a kind of you know a marketing buzzword that means almost as nothing as terms like authenticity and stuff um but yeah i i really don't know um the the kind of the one thing that i really appreciated seeing um sort of on twitter in the last couple of days with um citizen kane being knocked off the the top of Rotten Tomatoes and being replaced by Paddington 2 of these questions of when are we going to get the Paddington 2 um, of video games rather than the Citizen Kane of video games which is like <laughs> the worst just the worst thing ever so yeah I I don't know I don't I mean I, I kind of in a cynical way I suppose understand this broad desire to turn what's been popular for some people in games into these kind of other media in the same way of you know I guess things like turning Game of Thrones or whatever into a tv show and now endlessly capitalizing on that with all these spin-off tv shows and stuff like that but I just I I don't know it's it's they're so sort of fundamentally different forms and I don't necessarily know what a kind of TV version of The Last of Us is going to offer, it's not going to have 
for me, the same necessarily, the same kind of gut punch that playing the game would offer. Um, and, you know, I guess in that in that sense, they're thinking about completely different audiences in the same way that they've kind of done with the Witcher TV series, mm-hmm. which I was fundamentally opposed to in principle when I kind of heard about it. And then I sort of like watched it was, you know, out of the corner of my eye and was <laughs> like, oh, okay, actually, this isn't this isn't too bad, but it's definitely not the same thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't really have a particularly good or intelligent, um, or thoughtful answer about it. I just, I, I'm kind of have to be maybe more conscious or aware that it's not going to achieve the same sorts of things. And it, you know, maybe it'll bring a bit more kind of care and attention to the fact that, you know, video games as a medium do have much more capacity for kind of storytelling and coming up with interesting stories than people perhaps popularly assume um whether or not they actually end up then successfully working in kind of tv and cinema i don't know but even if it just means a bit more kind of cultural sort of understanding or maybe a bit more kind of cultural legitimacy more broadly for video games i guess it can't be too bad well we've had a a quick injection of that recently the uh, developer respawn uh, won an Academy Award uh, for their yeah, short yeah. Uh, documentary film related to their uh, most recent World War II VR game, uh, which came out um, rather ignominiously uh, at the end of the year last year. Uh, not a very popular game, but then kind of created this uh, documentary that was part of the promotion and then part of the uh, kind of uh, history within the game that players could access. But uh, led to an Oscar. Uh, so weird, yeah. weird times. Another example of this kind of, uh, I think yearning on the part of game developers, uh, in part to, uh, have at least a, a foot in kind of a more well-established, um, uh, grounds of cinema, whereas games are still kind of, I think, disparaged, um, even in, you know, America it's kind of looked down upon. So I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I might, I don't know, I, I said all of that, but now I'm kind of slightly rethinking everything I said in that, you know, we are sometimes too, um, sometimes we, we want to separate kind of film and TV and games too much from each other, but they've always been so kind of inherently intertwined in terms of what they've been trying to do and the kinds of reference points they've been drawing on. And they've always been sort of inspiring each other and drawing, you know, bits and pieces from, from elsewhere. And I, and I am even in, a, in principle kind of fundamentally opposed to this kind of very, um, you know, original game series idea of completely separating off games from everything else. Um, I don't think we should be doing that. Um, but, you know, who, who knows, um, I guess, <laughs> basically, is what I'm trying to not very well say. <laughs> they, one of the things I've found uh, really interesting is that obviously video games have borrowed the sort of language of cinema and TV for a long time. But I've sort of noticed the opposite starting to happen as well, where cinema makes far more use of first person camera than it used to. You know, like it used to be relinquished to just the creep in the bushes in a horror film, right? That was when you got first person camera. But now it seems to be much more prevalent. And of course, the advent of drones uh, um, and uh, using drones for uh, camera perspectives has immediately brought forth the the sort of visual language that video games have been using forever because it's easy to move around in the virtual space or move the perspective around. Um, so I found that kind of really interesting. There's a sort of merging going on sort of quietly, formally, uh, as well as in um, terms of uh, content. Um, 
yeah, it, it intrigues me. I also think that there are films released now that perhaps wouldn't have been as big a hit if the audiences weren't uh, versed in video game logic. Mm-hmm. Sort of, yeah. I, particularly Christopher Nolan's kind of films, you know, things like Tenet and Inception. Like, they have video game movies, you know. <laughs> they have so much video game logic embedded into the ways that the narratives work, you know, in Inception right down to the very last moment where the audience decides the truth, you know. There's a branching narrative at the very end. So I, I think, as you said, you can't really separate them out uh, any longer. They, they naturally sort of fuse over time. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting time, I think, for uh, looking at these different kind of storytelling media and how they work. Awesome. All right. Well, let's end there. I've I kept you all too long. Uh, thank you all very much for joining me and talking about uh, Historical Games Network. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for giving us this space. Sure. All right, listener, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.